Support has been provided by independent educational grants from Astellas, AstraZeneca, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Janssen Biotech Incorporated, administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, Merck, Pfizer Incorporated, Sanofi Genzyme, and Eurogen Pharma Incorporated. Hi, this is Vic Nitti, Chair of the AUA Office of Education, Wel- welcoming you to another AUA Office of Education podcast. This, another in our series on the AUA Expert Exchange podcast, discussions about managing GU cancer. Specifically, today we will be talking about genetic testing and personalized medicine in prostate cancer. It is my pleasure to introduce my co-host, Dr. Sam Kaffenberger. Dr. Kaffenberger is a practicing urologic oncologist at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. He is the urology lead for genitourinary clinical trials at the University of Michigan, and his research interests include prostate and bladder cancer genomics. He is the longest practicing and baldest assistant professor of urology at the University of Michigan and is the father of two beautiful girls. As a diehard Ohio State football fan, he is greatly enjoying this period of mediocrity in Michigan football. And I can tell you that that introduction came from him and not me. Sam, <laughs> welcome to the podcast. Oh, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for the warm introduction. Uh, very excited to talk about this topic, which is near and dear to my heart. All right. So what I'm going to do is I just want to go over our four learning objectives before we start. And they are first to identify the role of genetic testing in men with advanced metastatic and castrate, <clears throat> castration resistant prostate cancer. The second is to state the criteria for genetic testing of prostate cancer patients, the gene panels available and the options for testing these men. Number three is to describe the results of genetic testing and relay this information to patients in order to facilitate shared decision-making based on test results. And finally, the fourth to explain the importance of testing for germline mutations and their implication for novel therapies such as PARP inhibitors. So um, Sam, as we start, I'm, the first question I'm gonna ask is, why do we test men with localized, metastatic, and castrate-resistant prostate cancer? Yeah, so you know, I think this is a great question. And this is an entire topic that, that is, um, you know, would take a huge amount of time to, to really go into, but um, there, there is great and increasing interest in, in germline testing for men with prostate cancer. And, and that's for a number of reasons, really. So the first of which I think is prognostication. It's been well shown that men with BRCA2 mutations have, have basically worse outcomes in every stage of disease um, compared to men who do not have these germline mutations. So these are things that people are born with that can predispose them to prostate cancer and can affect the outcome of the cancer when it does develop. So I think prognostication is sort of the first piece. Um, and this, you know, plays a role for metastatic disease and also probably in localized disease as well. Um, you know, we talk commonly about guys with low-risk prostate cancer who we would normally recommend surveillance to. But, you know, I think it's, a, it's an open question whether or not men who have BRCA2 mutations and also are found to have low-risk prostate cancer, are they candidates for surveillance? And I think the jury's still out on this. So, you know, that's a topic of ongoing, of ongoing research and, and don't have the answer yet. And I think you know, what we do for these guys depends on who you ask. 
The other important piece of this is cascade testings for, for other relatives. So this is both male and female relatives of these patients um, because it can have implications on other cancers um, and, and I think is important to know for, for everybody involved. Um, and of course, this can impact men who don't have prostate cancer yet. So, you know, I think, I think there, this is an active area of research as well. So if, for instance, if a, if a patient has a known BRCA2 mutation, should we screen them earlier? Should we screen them more intensively? Should we use a lower PSA cutoff to biopsy? So these are all open areas of research. And, you know, I'm fortunate enough to work at the University of Michigan. Um, one of my colleagues there, Todd Morgan, has started a clinic where we actually dedicate towards men who have known mutations um, like BRCA2, BRCA1, um, Lynch syndrome, things like this, and trying to figure out, should we be screening these guys sooner on? I think the other piece of this is that it probably, you know, knowing whether or not a guy has one of these mutations will probably um, affect their, their future treatment if they develop metastatic disease. We'll go on into that more later on. So what, you know, I understand that this, this area is to some degree in its infancy, but any sort of signals as to if we should be more aggressive in screening or if we should treat earlier or more aggressively um, you getting any signals yet, or is it just too early to tell? You know, I think it's largely too early to do. I, I think there's really good data that, that tells us that, that folks with, at least with bracket two mutations anyways, you know, prognosis is worse. And I think, you know, we, we probably jump on that one a little bit more aggressively than the other ones. But, you know, I think for, for looking for signal, especially for, for men who have not been diagnosed with cancer yet, we don't have it yet. I think, I think, um, you know, the best data for this comes from Europe and the UK with, with the IMPACT trial where there's, you know, thousands of men are, are looked at and, and a huge number with BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutations. And, you know, by and large, they found an increased incidence in clinically significant prostate cancer in these men at a younger age. So that's probably the best signal that we have. But, you know, at, at least in this country, we don't really have a, a burden of data to support more intensive early screening yet. Are you finding that patients themselves are wanting to be more aggressive if they have these gene mutations? Uh, a, a man with a, you know, with a BRCA2 <clears throat> gene mutation, is he, does he seem to be want to be treated more aggressively or you're not picking up that signal yet either? I would say it largely depends on where you practice and what your patient population is like. Um, you know, in rural Michigan, um, it's hard to get guys in the clinic, even with advanced cancer sometimes. So, you know, I think it totally depends on the patient population that you work with. There's no question that there are guys who, you know, once they find out that they have one of these germline mutations, want to be treated more aggressively. In fact, if you go to Europe, you know, in, in Germany, there, there's a reported series of, of guys who've had prophylactic prostatectomies, no diagnosed prostate cancer, but known BRCA2 mutations. So, you know, there's a huge spectrum there for, for what, what the right answer is, I think. And, and I think um, it just depends on who you're working with. Sounds like it's heading down the, uh, the breast cancer pathway. It is. I think it totally is. I think, you know, just like for many other things, we really lag behind the, the breast cancer community and the breast cancer research. I mean, you know, we're just sort of catching up right now. I mean, prostate cancer screening has actually been in the early detection for breast cancer guidelines for longer than it has in the early detection for prostate cancer guidelines. Like 
we've only recently added germline testing into these guidelines in the past couple of years. So um, we're a little behind the eight ball, I think. Well, that that's a great lead into my next question, which has to do with guidelines. And what do the guidelines tell us about who we should test and how we should test them? Yeah, so, so I think that the guidelines lay it out pretty easily for us now. And I think it'll take time for clinical practice to catch up with the guidelines like usual. But basically, the guidelines suggest that we should test all guys who have high and very high risk localized prostate cancer, and basically all men with regional and metastatic prostate cancer. So, and, and it, there's good rationale for this. I mean, we know that based on the Pritchard study that was published in the New England Journal, that around 12% of guys with metastatic prostate cancer have a germline mutation in one of these um, DNA damage response pathway genes. So that's a, that's a huge number. I mean, 12% is really impressive. Um, we also know that guys with high and very high risk localized prostate cancer, there is a significant burden of these mutations in these men as well. But if you look all the way at the other end of the spectrum and Gleason 6 prostate cancer, Gleason grade group 1 prostate cancer, you know, the preponderance of these mutations is relatively low. So so basically anyone from high risk prostate cancer on up should be offered testing. Also, men who have Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry should also be offered testing. Um, because of the high incidence of these mutations with that ancestry. Also, men who have known family histories of, of pathogenic mutations in BRCA1, 2, Lynch syndrome, things like this, because we know that these mutations are already in their family. Um, the other part of the NCCN guidelines deals with family history. So the family history question is, you know, I, I think it's, it's, it's important to, to ask this for any man who's newly diagnosed with prostate cancer. Um, and it's not just prostate cancer, but but basically they break it down into a family history of prostate cancer. So a brother or a father um, or multiple family members who have a clinically significant prostate cancer. So Gleason grade group two or higher, or Gleason seven or higher prostate cancer diagnosed at less than 60 years of age or who died from prostate cancer. That meets the criteria for germline testing in a patient who comes in um, for, for, for screening. Um, or more three or more um, cancers on the same side of the family and especially people who are diagnosed at a young age, so less than 50 years of age. And there's a whole list of cancers that, that are included here, bile duct, breast, ovarian, colorectal, um, small bowel, urothelial, so on and so forth. You, you can read them under the, the NCCN guidelines, but that sort of is the criteria for family history to prompt germline screening in a new, newly diagnosed patient. Sam, before we get on, on to how to test and which tests we should do, with these tests in the guidelines, are they uh, covered by most insurance companies? Really good and tricky question. Um, and the answer is it depends. So they are covered on some insurance companies and some are not. Um, so we've, we've dealt with this a little bit at the University of Michigan. Um, it's easier to get them covered for folks who have, you know, metastatic disease because of the treatment implications that come with that. But especially for, for people who are with family history um, or coming with, you know, high risk localized disease, it can be a little bit tricky. So as part of our prostate cancer risk clinic, or sorry, as, as part of one of our other studies at the University of Michigan, you know, we basically lay out all the, the potential ways that, that each test may or may not be covered. Um, we have some that come with it with an out-of-pocket cost. Um, if it's if it's not covered by insurance companies, but it's a little bit tricky and depends on where you are and depends on the insurance company is really the, the bottom line. Okay, let's talk about how to test. 
Yeah, it's it, this is this is the key piece, and I think there's a lot of confusion out here with regards to how to test for germline testing. So, I think it's important to sort of take a step back. So, for germline testing, we're testing what's inherited from mom and dad. So, this is these are not the tumor-specific mutations, which are the somatic mutations. So, the commercially available tests that that basically test for somatic mutations and prostaglandins are things you know that we all know about, like Prolaris. Um, decipher, um, Oncotype DX. These are these are somatic tests. These are not for germline testing. Furthermore, there are, are direct consumer oriented testing out there. These are what we term as recreational, um, you know, germline testing or re recreational genetics. These are things like Ancestry, 23andMe, um, easily available. And you may have patients that come in and say, "Yeah, I've been tested. I'm fine." It's important to know that this is incomplete. So they're not looking for all of the different mutations that are covered on a commercially available, you know, clinical grade test. These are tests like Invitae, on color, Myriad. There's a whole bunch of them out there that are important. And they're, they're multi-gene panels that look at various prostate cancer specific genes. Some are smaller, some are bigger. They all have their distinct advantages and disadvantages. Um, you know, I think for the smaller panel test, there's basically a little bit less uncertainty that comes with these tests. Um, the bigger panel tests, more genes that are covered or more mutations that are covered. Um, but the problem is there's some more uncertainty that comes in because, you know, not all mutations are the same. You can have a mutation in bracket two that is insignificant and you can have some that are pathogenic. Um, so, so there are a lot of what we call variants of undetermined significance. And we don't really know what to do with all of those. And that's what some of the importance of genetic counseling comes in. Um, so I think it's important to make sure it's a clinical grade germline test um, and not just, you know, 23andMe and not a tumor test like Prolaris or something like that. All right. Well, now we have the results of our genetic testing. I'm guessing that the real work starts with uh, the process of counseling uh, and communicating with our patients. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah, this is so, so, so important and so tricky. And the reason I say it's tricky is that, you know, there's a shortage of genetic counselors out there. Uh, things may be different from California where you are, but you know, in, in Michigan, we have a really hard time getting folks in to see genetic counselors. And I think, especially if we're gonna expand germline testing to all people with high-risk localized prostate cancer, this is a huge number of patients. And it's just not practical to have counseling ahead of time with a, a certified genetic counselor prior to testing all these patients. So what we've largely moved for, similar to folks in breast cancer, is basically clinician-directed pre-test counseling. That's why it's important for urologists to have some baseline knowledge of being able to, to provide at least some initial counseling with what's involved with this testing and have some, at least a, you know, a, a little bit of knowledge, what, what are some of the legal ramifications of testing? Um, so that's what we try to do here is, is clinician directed pre-test counseling prior to ordering a test for this. Um, and I think it's important to have you know, shared informed decision-making ahead of time, just to have an idea of what's, what protections are afforded by law. Um, and getting into this, you know, this is basically the, the, the Gino, the Gina law, which is um, the, the Genomic Information Non-Discrimination Act. Uh, this, this basically protects for discrimination for employment and also for health insurance and things like that. 
But I think it's important to know that this does not cover for, for small employees or small employers, so less than 15 employees, basically. It also doesn't cover for things like life insurance or, or disability insurance. Um, so it, it's not a complete blanket protection. And I think it's important to know that. But I think usually, you know, for us, what we do, we do a little bit of pretest counseling. We, we talk about the rationale for doing germline testing. And if the patient wants to do it, they do it, and we get a result back. And if we get a hit, if we get a pathogenic mutation, um, or even, you know, maybe even if a variant of undetermined significance, that's when we refer them over to the genetic counselors for formal, germ, you know, formal genetic counseling, which I think is so important for this because um, they can also help with the cascade testing. If you identify a new mutation, it's important to, to pass this information down to, to relatives of the patient as well. So important topic, um, it requires, you know, shared decision-making and, and preferably with a, with a genetic counselor as well. And I think that the issues with uh, genetic counseling and, and the shortage of them are, um, I, I think that's countrywide. I know that uh, Brian Chuck at UCLA always tells us that he wishes that there were more genetic counselors. And I, I think that UCLA just started a new program. So that's good so that we can get more people trained. But I know that that is, you know, as genetic testing becomes more and more popular and personalized medicine becomes more and more popular, we're going to need more people to do that job. So hopefully we'll see more of that in the future. Totally agreed. I think part of the problem with that is that is that there are some issues with how genetic counselors can bill or, or can't bill um, in many circumstances. So that's that's a, another challenging part of this is, is the financial aspects of it. Um, but but you're you're absolutely right that you know we need more genetic counselors and and we need better access to them throughout the country. All right, let's talk a little bit about uh, treatment implications when we get uh, different results, find different genetic information, mutations, et cetera. How can that affect how we treat patients? Yeah, it's a really good question. So it depends a little bit on the stage of disease. Um, you know, for, for patients who are identified to have one of these pathogenic mutations prior to diagnosis of prostate cancer, um, obviously it'll impact, you know, maybe in the future anyways, how we screen these patients. But I think at least for patients with high risk localized disease um, or very high risk localized disease, it doesn't really directly impact their treatment at that time. But the thought is that it may impact future treatments should they develop metastatic disease. That's part one. And part two is it may, you know, basically determine eligibility for clinical trials early on. So I think the real money in this is, is in the metastatic spectrum, right? So, so folks with metastatic prostate cancer, if they're found to have one of these, one of these mutations, it can very well impact treatments for them. And we already said earlier, you know, 12% of patients with metastatic prostate cancer are found to have a mutation in a DNA damage response pathway gene. So this, of course, comes down to, to things like PARP inhibitors um, and immunotherapy as well. Um, so patients who have known BRCA1, 2, and ATM mutations, um, this will affect some of the, the treatments that are offered to them uh, during the course of their, of their disease. So, so this largely comes from the, the Triton 2 trial 
um, and and the profound trial as well, which these both came out relatively recently. Um, in, in gosh, in the past in the past year, results were were published for these. So, I think um, you know this is this is an ongoing debate, um, and there, there's more to sort of to, to to learn from this. I think, and and you know, eventually we hope to be like lung cancer or some of these other cancers where there's a huge number of mutation directed therapies. But basically, for for men, even right now today, um, men who've trialed trialed a a antiandrogen or you know abiraterone something like this, who are, who are identified to have one of these mutations, may be eligible for a PARP inhibitor like olaparib or rucaparib or there's a number of other ones as well. So this is a direct, you know, and the, and these these drugs are not offered to folks who don't have one of these mutations. So this is a mutation directed personalized medicine. Um, as, as a result of the germline testing that these these patients undergo. Um, so the other interesting piece of this is, is immunotherapy. So immunotherapy has largely not been successful in prostate cancer, unlike kidney cancer or bladder cancer. The exception to this is men with Lynch syndrome. So this is one of the mismatch repair mutations, things like MSH2, MSH6, um, or you know we always talk about microsatellite instability. These patients with metastatic prostate cancer can oftentimes have profound responses to, to immunotherapy like pembrolizumab. Um, and these are things that wouldn't be found necessarily without germline testing. Um, so, a, you know, a direct clinical antidote, I took care of a, a gentleman with, with you know, um, metastatic progressive prostate cancer, widespread metastatic disease, PSA going through the roof, have progressed through all the standard therapies, you know, enzalutamide, abiraterone, um, docetaxel chemotherapy. And he was found to have a he was found to have Lynch syndrome, and he was started on pembrolizumab, and he has PSA zero, you know, complete response, disease free, um, just a huge dramatic response. So these are some you know it's uncommon, right? Lynch syndrome is is not commonly found in prostate cancer, but when it's found, it has such important treatment ramifications that that it's it's worthwhile trying to find um, these rare guys. So I, I think. You know, this is this is fascinating, and of course, we hope we find more mutations that can be targeted. Um, and I think another part of that is for clinical trial eligibility. So, you know, there there are more and more clinical trials coming out that if you have one of these mutations, you may be um, eligible for a certain drug. And this may not be just in the metastatic spectrum. This may be, you know, neoadjuvant, so prior to treatment for high risk localized prostate cancer. Um, for instance, there's a trial where, where people can get neoadjuvant PARP inhibitors um, that's currently ongoing. So, so I think you know this is. I, I think the direct treatment implications is is probably the most important piece of this germline testing. Um, and I think there's you know, like you said, we're in our infancy for this, so there should be much more to come in the future. So my next question or pair of questions would be, where do you think we'll be? five years or a decade from now? And then where would you like us to be or where would you hope we would be five years or a decade from now in what's available and how we use it? Yeah, this is a great question. And this comes to the piece of, of you know, what are, what are the uptake of these guidelines going to be? And it's always so hard to tell, you know, are we going to be able to roll out genetic counseling and, and all the things that come with the, the financial piece for paying for these tests to all the practices across this country. And 
you know, five years, I, my prediction is that we won't be there yet. Um, I, I think, you know, there's a lot of large group practices which have been pretty good about jumping onto this early on, but this is really in its infancy. And, and I think until we figure out how these tests are paid for um, and how do we deal with all the downstream implications, the cascade testing, the legal ramifications of learning of one of these mutations, that's where that, the, the policy piece comes into this. And, and I think the policy hasn't really caught up with the current state of the art for science. So, you know, obviously I hope that, that everybody with high risk or higher prostate cancer, high risk localized prostate cancer or, or metastatic prostate cancer um, will be tested in five years. I don't think that's going to be the case. I think, I think it's definitely going to be a much higher percent of men with metastatic prostate cancer because, you know, there, it's guideline, it's guideline recorded, and there are direct treatment ramifications. Um, so I, I think that's going to sort of lead the pathway because of the, you know, possibilities of PARP inhibitors and immunotherapy and things like this. So, so will we be there yet? No. Um, where would I like us to be then? I, I'd like to see some some advances on, on you know national policy where we can get genetic counseling more easily paid for. Um, and I think if we do that, then we'll see a, a higher you know higher numbers of genetic counselors, and it'll just be easier to get that taken care of because you know busy urologists in practice probably not going to have time to get these thorough family histories and and to do these big family trees and to do the cascade testing that's that's you know, incumbent upon us to, to do if we identify one of these mutations. Um, and furthermore, you know, dealing with variants of undetermined significance. So there's all these mutations we don't know what to do with. Um, it, we're getting better about identifying if they're important or not, but we're just not quite there, there yet. So I, I think we're, we'll move there slowly. Um, we'll lag behind breast cancer. Um, we'll lag behind medical oncology, but, but we'll get there with time, I think. So I think it's going to pick up, but we're just, you know, just going to take a little bit more work. Any closing thoughts for our audience? Yeah, you know, I think um, germline testing is fascinating. It's coming. It's going to be coming to all, you know, all of our practices. Anybody who takes care of, of prostate cancer or even screens men for, for prostate cancer, it's coming. And, it's, you know, I think it's important to, I don't, I don't think it's, hard you know the the ncc and guidelines for this are, are not challenging to take in and to, to learn but you know I, I would just you know challenge everybody to to make sure to do the family history you know do a if you if you if you have epic do something that prompts you to do it and not just prostate cancer but breast ovarian pancreas cancer some of these other cancers as well um and just sort of keep your antenna up for this and and anybody who comes in with with real high-risk prostate cancer you know um, great group four or higher prostate cancer um, to, to really just keep in mind that that germline testing is, is a part of this. And, and I think if you can just sort of just get in your head like a, a little spiel on, on pre-test sort of counseling for this um, and just try to have your practices have, have some, some of these tests sort of lined up so you know which insurance companies cover them, what the out-of-pocket costs are if they don't cover them, it'll make your life a lot easier But because I think it's paramount to have this patients will start asking for this um and and it's it's important for us to sort of keep up with the science um so we don't get left behind and so we can more importantly provide excellent care for our patients dr sam kaffenberger 
assistant professor of urology at the University of Michigan and diehard Buckeye fan. Thank you so much for that really <laughs> comprehensive and clear uh, discussion about genetic testing and genetic testing in prostate cancer. Um, I, I really thought it was great and, and I learned a lot, so thank you. Dr. Uh, Nadia, I'm happy to be here. I appreciate everyone's time and thanks for having me on. I would also like to thank uh, our audience and, and remind you all that uh, if you have, uh, if you need any further information, you can visit us at our website at auanet.org university. Thank you.